spanning the nerd world and feeding your fandom. Crash landed. From comics to video games. From the cinematic universe to television. Stars in the industry. Something out there had discovered us. It's time for the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Here's your host, James Witham. Heading towards another milestone. It's episode 198 of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I'm James Witham, and think about that for a second. Now we are what, just one more episode away? From our 200th episode. I mean, it, it's crazy because this thing was started in March of 2014. So we're entering year four already of the Down and Nerdy podcast. And that's thanks to you for, for just listening to the show, sending in your comments, sharing, anything that you've ever done to support the show. If you've been here a while, I appreciate that. Also, I mean, hey, if this is your first show listening, welcome. I mean... Here's to another 200, right? So planning a bunch of great stuff for the 200th episode. You can follow along down nerdypodcast.com for all the stuff that's going to be going on there. But this week, going to be do- talking to a bunch of cast members from the Arrowverse. I mean, David Harrowood is here from Supergirl. We're going to talk to Katie Lotz from Legends of Tomorrow. Also, Candace Patton and Daniel Panabaker from The Flash and so many, so much more. That was actually recorded at DC and DC 2018 from a couple of weeks ago. Brandon Routh as well, which you heard the news about Kid Flash. I actually get to ask him about that before it was announced. So you'll hear what Brandon had to say about Kid Flash joining Legends of Tomorrow. That's going to be coming up a little bit later on. But first, you know I'm reviewing some comics. It's what we're reading next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hey, this is Jeff Lemire, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Fire up the tablet, the laptop, or pull out your long box, whatever you're reading on. It's time for what we're reading, and you know if there's a Raven book that's coming out, then I'm going to be reading it. It's pretty simple. It's Raven, Daughter of the Darkness, number one from DC Comics out this week. From Marv Wolfman, of course, who else would be writing it, right? Pop Mon does the art, and Laverne Kinzerski on the colors. Saeed Timofante on the letters. And Yannick Paquette does an amazing cover. Now, this is kind of a continuing story from the last solo Raven book, but we're getting 12 issues this time, so that's the good news. So it's kind of a continuation of that. If you haven't read it, not only do I recommend it that you go back, it'll help you understand who some of these supporting characters are. Obviously, you know who Raven is. You know who her father is. I'm not going to get any spoiler territory on this story, but there are certain characters where it'll be easier to know who they are If you go back and read that first issue. But that being said, Raven is still with her aunt's family. And she's kind of starting to blend a little more with her school friends and hanging out and stuff like that. And becoming a little bit more vulnerable. And that's one thing that I love that that Wolfman's kind of introduced here. Not only do we get this internal monologue from Raven, which I think kind of makes the book. It's one of my favorite parts of this book. But we also see a more vulnerable Raven than I think we've seen in the past, and this is a chance to really dive more into the character, which is something that I've loved in the last one as well. So we get to see a little bit of her vulnerable side and a little bit of her actually unintentionally making an attempt to be normal, which, I mean, is are there times where, you know, I've been guilty of that in my life? Sure, and, and maybe you have as well. So maybe that's what makes this book so relatable. I mean, of course, she's a teenager, so, I mean, whatever point in your life that might have ever happened to you, but it's not that simple, is it? It never really is because Raven senses something and it draws her away 
And then we find out that there's something very strange. And there's a reason that this book has the name Anime Eyes in it. And that's in kind of like the subtitle of the book. So you'll find that out later on in the issue. It's, uh, man, I want to say eye-opening. I really do. And I just did. So there's there it is. If you've been missing the bad puns, there you go. It's very eye-opening what happens at the end of this book. But, but throughout, it's very much a Raven story and, and her living with her aunt's family and, and getting along with her friends and actually having friends for Raven. And, and it's just the struggle of her everyday life wrapped up in the fact that she's trying to be a superhero and it's her juggling everything and ultimately trying to either help or fight whatever is going on. And then you have somebody else pulling the strings in the background too. Again, something I won't spoil. And you're constantly wondering wondering to yourself, okay, this seems obvious, but is this person going to screw everything up or are they actually trying to make it better? It's kind of hard to tell. And I guess that we kind of get a hint of that as the book drags on as well. So we'll find out exactly what's going on there and who this other character is. I'm sure in future issues, we've got 12 issues. So that's the good thing is that we can let this thing breathe a little bit and get way more story than we did last time. Cause I would have loved a few more issues of that last Raven run. You know, I mean, if you've got pop mon on a book, you know, it's going to be awesome art. So I had no doubts there. A great way to just continue the story. And there was no drop off at all. It just felt like it was absolutely right. All the visuals are stunning. You have to have a good colorist on a book. Then it involves Raven. That's why you bring in Laverne Konzerski. That is exactly why you go out and get a good color. So all in all, another great Raven book by everybody involved. Raven, Daughter of the Darkness, number one. A pull for me. Can't wait to see what is next. IDW this week jumps into the world of video game comics once again. You know they've got Sonic coming out not too long from now. April looks like it's going to be big for them and Sonic. But this time we're going to talk about Gears of War and the Rise of Rom number one, which is Curtis Weeby doing the writing, Max Dunbar on the art, Jose Luis Rio on the colors, Gilberto Lansco on the letters, and Ryan Brown doing the cover art. Now before I even dive into this book, did I just get through... All the names without having to stumble once or trying to redo a name. I think that that's a new record for me. I'm proud of myself. I'm giving myself a pat on the back that you can't see because this is a podcast and there's nobody involved right now. So I am giving myself a pat on the back, even if you're not. Thank you very much. So this is actually going to follow the rise of, I mean, arguably the most iconic villain in Gears of War, right? Which is Rom and kind of his ascent through the Locust Horde. And we're very much starting, not necessarily at the beginning, but close to the beginning because you basically jumped right into this battle in the trenches with uh, Rom's Blight, and it's against the Lambent. If you don't know anything about the Lambent, they're kind of these mutated, infected creatures, and it's not good. And they, and they, it's almost like orcs where they come at you in almost like the thousands all the time, and it's almost overwhelming. It's not like they're amazing battle warriors or anything, which orcs are, but these ones clearly just don't seem to be the brightest bulbs in the box, but there's so many of them and you know, they come at you in, in waves. So it's hard to kind of defend yourself. So that's kind of where the book starts out. Now, again, trying not to spoil anything here, but, but basically Rom feels like the war is lost. What's the point? And my team needs a win. It's kind of, it's like the coach that thinks his team constantly needs a win. So basically it's like Rom is in charge of the Cleveland Browns. At this point, so he's like, hey, you know, we're not going to win this. 
let's go find ourselves a win. And he thinks he does. He thinks he's found a world or a place in the world where they can thrive, where his people, the Locust Horde, can actually thrive. So he's like, you know what? I'm going to take my case to the queen. Now, before you get to the queen, you have to do it with Uzal Srak, who is a dick, by the way. I mean, it's kind of like the the higher up in any sort of command that doesn't want to give in at all, doesn't even want to listen, thinks you should fight the battle their way kind of thing. And what's funny is, is we not only get to see Rom's, you know, brute side here and his battle strength, but you also get to see his strategic sense. And it's it's very cool to see the mind work in this. And actually his relationship between him and Scourge in this book, very strong. The loyalty is really, really there. And I thought it was cool to watch just the just the two of them when they kind of broke off and made this little field trip. I thought that that was a really neat part of this book because you got to see, I don't want to say a more human side to them, but at the same time, that's kind of what it felt like. It was the one time we were like, this really is a brotherhood, isn't it? Instead of just thinking of this as a bunch of, of a couple of evils just battling each other to the death sort of thing. So once he takes his case up there, you kind of imagine how that's going to go. And then, you know, you don't you stick to your principles, right, if you have them, and which which he sort of does. And I can only imagine you think where that might go from there. So a lot of action in this book, a lot, a lot, a lot. But can I just stop for one second and say that Max Dunbar is out of his mind good. This art is crazy. It is insane. It's exactly what you'd want if you're a video game fan. Maybe one of your biggest complaints is, yeah, I read the comics, but the you know the art's never as good. Obviously, graphics are usually going to be better in games on large screen TVs, right, and 4K and all this. And Max Dunbar is giving you the 4K of comics here, as far as I'm concerned, because he is amazing. Every time Max Dunbar draws a page, I know that excellence is going to be involved. So talk about the perfect match for a Gears of War book. And then Curtis Weeby writing these characters... In a very much, not necessarily, I'm going to say non-video game sense. It, usually, when you're reading video game comics, the mistake is is that you try and make it too much like the game. And it doesn't feel like you're reading a story. It feels like you're kind of reading somebody playing through a level or something like that, right? Or a quest. This actually felt like a legitimate story to me. This actually felt like, though it was set in this world, you're giving me something that I didn't know before. Giving me something different. And that's one thing that video game comics can do really, really badly. But this one actually does a pretty good job of it. So I'm very impressed by Gears of War Rise of Rom number one so far. I don't think you have to be super into this particular character or even having to have played Gears of War to appreciate this book. I'm going to put this one in my poll box as well. Not super stoked about it, to be honest. But I'm very, very much wanting to see what's going to be going on. I love the art in the book. And I could end up being super stoked about it in the next couple of issues. I'm definitely really, really interested, which is why I'm giving it a pull. So I can't wait to see if this book ups its game even more in the next couple of issues. That's going to do it for what we're reading up next. Going to give my spoiler-filled, well, part spoiler-filled anyway, review of The Alienist from TNT. That's next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hey, guys. This is Dexter Darden from the Maze Runner series, and you're listening to Down and Nerdy Podcast. Time to do a little something different. Talk a little science on the show this week. For This Week in Geek Tam, I'm going to be reviewing the first two episodes 
of The Alienist on TNT. Now, this is going to be a little bit different because episode one, as of us recording the show, is already out. So going to do a little bit of spoilers on episode one. Episode two, though, not going to give you any spoilers for that. So let's set it up that way. In case you don't know what the show is about, it actually follows a doctor named Laszlo Kreitzler, who's played by Daniel Bruhl, who is an alienist who sometimes consults with the police department, also takes some private cases as well, and, and sort of runs a home for younger people that need help sort of thing and need mental assistance and families and things like that. So that's kind of where we're at. And then he also is a college aide. He's a college friend of John Moore, who's played by Luke Evans, who's kind of a illustrator for the paper. And then you also have Dakota Fanning, who plays Sarah Howard, who works for the police department, who sort of works with Roosevelt, Theodore Roosevelt, who's the police commissioner at the time. And, you know, kind of trying to clean up the city. And this is turn of the century. New York, and I mean turn of from the 19th to the 20th century. So you have to kind of put yourself in that mindset. Now, I got to tell you right now, as far as aesthetics are concerned, this show really nails the turn of the century look. I mean, it looks and feels the first episode, by the way, is so dark and so grim. It really sets the tone for this series. And I think even going into the second episode, again, I'm not going to spoil anything, but we see something different in the second episode tonally. So it's almost like you're seeing two different sides of this city in the same show in the first two episodes, even though it's, this is a dark show, man. I'm going to be honest. I mean, this is a, at times, really hard to watch show, not because it's a bad show. Don't get my, don't get me wrong there. This show is really good, but there it can be so uncomfortable at times. I mean, you're dealing with someone who's murdering young boy prostitutes who dress up like girls for the pleasure of men. I mean, if that's not an uncomfortable subject, I don't know what is. So, and then you've got Daniel Bruhl, who's taken uh, Laszlo Chrysler, who's taking kind of a unique interest in this case and wanting to solve it, and he brings John Moore in. For what seems like almost no reason whatsoever other than he wants him to draw pictures and, you know, chronicle the crime scene. And John Moore is not a guy that, I mean, he's kind of a ladies' man, or at least he tries to be. He's a smooth operator. He's he's a very social butterfly, I guess you could call him. But he does not have the stomach for this hard stuff. And before I get further into the show, actually, I really like the relationship between Kreitzler and more because it's almost like they balance each other out because Kreitzler is very much socially awkward. He's kind of a dick at times, too. I mean, he's a real jerk to a lot of people, or he's just kind of matter of fact. I guess it depends on how you look at it, but, I mean, he can be very unlikable at times. And then, then you've got John Moore, who's the exact opposite of that. He's a likable guy. He might not be the smartest guy, or he might not be able to handle some of the more serious things that, that life has to offer. But, I mean, he is almost like the means to the end, the yin and the yang kind of situation for Laszlo Kreitzler. And let's not forget that we also have Theodore Roosevelt, Roosevelt who they also went to college with. So they they kind of have this camaraderie thing going, or maybe they don't, but I'll get back to Roosevelt here in just a second. Now, the subject matter of the young boys thing is is enough to turn your stomach. But then you also have the fact that you have the young boy's family who's being tortured by basically the people who are running this brothel in the first place and the fact that nobody seems to care that this kid is dead and the cops are very crooked 
and corrupt. And again, they will make you feel uncomfortable big time. As a matter of fact, I mean, if you're looking at some of the cops and even their interactions with Sarah Howard as well in the police station, you can imagine being the first woman to be employed by the New York City police, how the cops are going to be treating her and, you know, the sexual harassment running rampant in that place. I mean, there is a couple of scenes along where you're like, yeah, that's that's probably how it goes. And, and you can understand why that stuff would happen. But again, uncomfortable. There's a theme here. But again, it's not a bad thing. So and, and then you see some stuff in episode two that, that will further your opinion about the police officers. I will say that. But in episode one, they just don't care about this case. And that's one of the reasons why Chrysler is caring about this case. And he's really pushing Roosevelt to, to give him more information. And then you enter Sarah Howard, who knows John Moore. They have been friends since childhood. So she has sort of a connection there with him, but kind of doesn't at the same time. She's very unsure of what she wants to do. She's a very strong woman, though, very well portrayed by Dakota Fanning. Well done. She's a strong woman. She wants to do the right thing, but she also doesn't want to give up her standing because she knows how hard she worked to get to where she was. So she certainly doesn't want to give that up by helping these guys and, you know, making giving Roosevelt a reason to get rid of her. And, and they already don't, a lot of the other men don't take her seriously anyway. Then you enter a couple of other characters that we see in episode one, who's Marcus and Lucius Isaacson, who are Jewish crime scene investigators. I mean, they're lieutenants, but they're basically crime scene investigators. And imagine, and that's one of the things the science part gets into this too, is that they are crime scene investigators in the 1890s slash, you know, turn of the century. And think about forensic science back then. It's fascinating, right? And the things that they do, and they actually talk about, you know, kind of newer methods. And they are the new science in crime scene investigating. And the cops don't like that that, that that much. And then there's also, again, a religious aspect here that the show tackles. Because not only are you talking about the new science, right? Science and religion don't really mix very well. And that's where Laszlo Chrysler comes in as well, is that a lot of the cops don't like him, don't respect him because of their religious beliefs. And they don't believe that what he's doing or some of the opinions he has is correct because it clashes with their religious beliefs. That actually, there's a big part in episode two, again, I won't spoil for you, that really crosses that religion and science line. And it is a big, big, it's not a huge part of the episode, but it's one of those things that kind of points out, okay, this is the time that we're in. And this is the battle that's being waged between science and religion. And I mean, far be it for me to say who's right and who's wrong there, right? That, that is an opinion I'm not going to give, but it is a discussion that will be brought up by the show, I think. And that's something that you can, you can sit down with and talk to fellow fans of the show about is that subject matter. And I think that that's a very cool thing. Now, again, I really haven't spoiled a whole lot here because I really want you to kind of experience the show if you want to check it out. But the characters are very, very good. There's another character, kind of somebody that works for Chrysler in his home, and it's Mary Palmer, who's played by Kiranka Kilcher. And she doesn't say a word, not a word, but the look on her face and her body movements just tell the whole story. And she's the one that's there when Kreitzler's spilling his guts at the end of this episode, no pun intended, when he is just saying, you know, if I want to get, if I want to find this killer, I need to get inside of the mind of this killer and maybe I need to become him. And she just gives him this look like, 
are you kidding me right now? And and not in a in a angry way, but in a very scared and frightened and emotional way. And just her looks alone can be so powerful in this episode. And again, the acting is just so, so good from so many of these characters. And then you push to episode two, and there's kind of a meeting there. And I won't spoil anything beyond that. And you get to see more of the interaction between all the characters together. But here's another thing. Something happens to John Moore in episode two. I will say that. That, man, I'm like, if this is what's going to happen, oof. It was just so uncomfortable. And you're, and I'm sitting here freaking out about, about him. It's like, you know, don't do this to him. Don't do this to him. Because in a way, you kind of already have a connection to these characters. And you want this killer found just because of the heinousness of these crimes in the times that we live in. But if you transport yourself back to that time, nobody cares. And then you have the family of this young boy who, who we do also see at some point. And, uh, you know, the Santorelli family, they want their son's killer found. They want their family member's killer found. And they know that there's only one person that's going to do that. The only problem I really had with this show, as far as the acting was concerned, was the Theodore Roosevelt character played by Brian Garrity. And I don't know if it's because of, you know, what we've learned about Roosevelt in our history books and how flamboyant he was and, you know, how tough he was. And there were certainly some instances in the first couple of episodes where he did show that toughness. But I'm just not feeling it. This is not the um, this is not the Roosevelt that I kind of expected that we get on this show. I thought we'd get a little bit more tough, a little bit more edgy. And I don't feel like there's that edge to that character yet. That doesn't mean it's not going to happen but I don't see yet. The chemistry is so good between some of the other characters. As a matter of fact, uh, Daniel Brühl and Dakota Fanning scenes together with Laszlo and Sarah Howard are really, really impactful, and she changes him. And I think that that's going to be a very interesting part of the show going forward. Again, the subject matter is very uncomfortable in this show, but the acting is so good, the story is so good, and it being a period piece... It's done so well that I'm really, really enjoying The Alienist. So again, only a couple of episodes in, so I can't rate this. But this is definitely a show that I'm going to keep watching. I'm going to keep watching The Alienist every Monday at 9 o'clock on TNT and see where it goes because the characters alone are making me stick around for this one. That's going to do it for this week in Geek Tainment. Up next, a boatload of nerd news to talk about and even some Oscar chat next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hi, I'm Court Lane, VP of Animation Development at Marvel, and I'm listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Time to find out who the actor goes to this week. It's time for Nerd News. And, you know, we have talked about Oscar nominations on the show before. Of course, we had Suicide Squad last year, that big controversy. Well, how about this one? I don't think anybody's upset about this. Logan gets nominated for an Oscar, and the category is the biggest thing in the story I think best adapted screenplay that is a big big deal and kind of breaking the mold for comic book movies which I mean kind of Logan did anyway I mean it wasn't an exact interpretation of the old man Logan story but it was such a powerful and impactful movie throughout and it was it was definitely did the character justice it did the story justice 
It was a great way for Hugh Jackman to go out as the character. Again, I really hope that they don't bring him back in the MCU. No offense to, to Hugh Jackman, but that was the perfect way to do it. Same thing with Patrick Stewart. It was the perfect way to say goodbye to Patrick Stewart as Professor X. I, I think that it just worked out. It all worked out the way it was supposed to. And the uh, this is kind of where the Oscars look for when, when it comes to good movies, right? It had great storytelling. It had a nice flow aesthetically and mood wise. It's the kind of film that you would see getting nominated for an Oscar. The portrayals from the actors were fantastic. The story itself before even being brought to the movies in the first place is a good story. And it's not your traditional superhero story. And I think that that's something that we're going to see the Oscars still shy away from, from a little bit are the traditional superhero stories because you've heard the term Oscar worthy kind of bantered about before. And maybe, you know, maybe as comic book fans, we scoff at that because we think our stories are fantastic stories and they are, but there is still a large portion of the population who doesn't see it that way and shame on them, first of all. But second of all, and the Oscars, look how long it's taken them to come around to female directors. And things like that. Look how long it took for an African-American to win an Oscar. The the Oscars are not exactly the most progressive group in getting with the times, okay? And understanding stuff that's great all the time. It's not like movies that win Oscars don't deserve them most of the time. But the Oscars takes a while to catch up to stuff that we know is great anyway. So I can only imagine how long it's going to take for them to catch up and go, oh, well, some of these comic book movies are actually really good. And there's going to be a ton of them, by the way. So it might get to the point where they might have no choice. So how about that? And I mean, I'm still upset. No Patty Jenkins, really? Patty Jenkins doesn't get nominated for an Oscar for Best Director? How, how much longer does Patty Jenkins need to be disrespected for the fantastic job that she did on Wonder Woman? Now, I understand maybe, you know, if you nominate her, you don't nominate somebody that's deserving I understand that, but what makes them more deserving than Patty Jenkins? And again, it's it's the lack of recognizing female directors. I know that there's one in there. Well, you can't have more than one female director. I mean, come on. She did a great job in what she did to put it together. I'm glad that Logan is getting its due because it well-deserved. And actually, you know what? I think they could actually win. I really, really do. This is one of those times where, you know, like Guardians of the Galaxy got nominated for something. I can't even think off the top of my head. Uh, but you go, you know what? Yeah, maybe it wins, maybe it doesn't. You know, like effects or something. Yeah, a comic book movie could win that. But, you know, you look at stuff like Best Adapted Screenplay, and there's a legitimacy to that. And maybe Logan opens the door to, A, not only, not only just giving us more of these movies and more serious-type movies like Logan was and R-rated comic book movies, but... Maybe it provides some sort of a legitimacy to the genre as a whole. And we'll start seeing this happen more often. To the degree that we care, though, right? Because whether they're nominated for Oscars or not, we're still going to love them and still go see them, right? But it's still nice to get recognized every now and then. Speaking of being recognized, it looks like ABC is getting out of the broom and sweeping the Inhumans under the rug because they think they kind of stealth canceled the show. This week, right? I mean, pretty much no mention of the show on the ABC website anymore. All the promotional materials are kind of off. Some links that used to go to the Inhumans page is are now broken. And, I mean, really? Like we didn't see this coming? And, and I, they said that they haven't made it official. Uh, they haven't made it official yet. Well, I mean, it seems 
pretty unofficially official now, doesn't it? Well, but this is interesting, too, because the ABC Entertainment Group president, Channing Dungey, actually talked to Bloomberg recently and was asked about comic book shows and, well, ABC kind of shy away. And they said, quote, the question really is more what kind of superhero show? What's the tone and how are we doing it? I would never say we're through with superheroes. Obviously, you have Marvel properties. Obviously, you're never going to be through with superheroes. But the best part about that was what kind of superhero show and what's the tone and how are we doing it? That's the part of the quote that really interests me because that tells me that they're looking at this and saying, look, we can't do the same thing over and over and over again. We've got to change things up a little bit because let's face it, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and Agent Carter, kind of similar, right? Even in humans, to a degree, was kind of similar. And I think that when you look at the one of the parts of that quote, how are we doing it? I think that that is the biggest knock on Inhumans right there. I feel like ABC feels like they didn't do it right or somebody didn't do it right and ABC noticed. I, it's almost like you knew you had a clunker, but it's Marvel, so you threw it out there because you thought, ah, maybe it's Marvel and it won't matter. No, it mattered, and now I think that they're starting to realize that, that you can't just throw a Marvel label on something and it's just going to succeed just because. So maybe we're going to see a little bit different stuff. Maybe we'll see stuff that's a little bit more on the comedic side. Maybe we'll see stuff that's really, really on the serious side, although that's not really ABC's forte, is it? We don't see a whole lot of hard-hitting drama and action on ABC Really? So maybe that is something they're going to start doing. Maybe they'll kind of think outside the box a little bit. Maybe this is a home for new warriors that's still looking for a new home after leaving Freeform. And wouldn't that be an upgrade? Going from the Freeform network, which is part of the ABC family, and moving up to regular ABC. And why not do that? Why can't you? Just because it's characters that not everybody recognizes? Who cares? This is a show that, on its face anyway, seems like it could really succeed so why not bump it up? And ABC is looking for places to fill in their lineup. I can't think of a better way than to fill it with new warriors and get some different characters out there and get a little bit more of a comedic side to the Marvel brand on TV. Why not do that? I think that that's a good idea. But we'll have to see exactly what direction they go and how long it is before we see a new superhero show on ABC. And then you talk about fatigue as well. So we'll find out how much of a role that plays. We will have a new character coming to the Sonic universe, according to IGN, a new article that just came out. Sonic will have a new character introduced in the IDW comics. They're going to be starting in April, so a couple of months away, and it's going to be Tangle, the ring-tailed lemur. Now, you can go to the IGN page and see the designs from Tyson Hess, who is an amazing artist, not just on Sonic, but on other stuff as well. And just fits the genre so well. And you can see the, the design very much fits in within the Sonic realm. Now, Tangle kind of uses the tail as a whip or a fist or something like that. And and they've said, IDW said, this is a character that, you know, it's got a little bit of, little bit of sass. You know, a little bit of a different attitude. So I think that that'll be a nice little mix throwing into the Sonic realm. Now, here's the thing, though. It's not like this is a character that's just going to jump right into the fray right away, right? So we're going to get a fresh start, according to IDW, on the Sonic comics when they come out in April. But we will not see Tangle 
until issue four on April the 25th. So they're going to be releasing issues all throughout April. And we will not see this new character until the fourth issue. Great job by whoever made that decision. Because you're already starting fresh. And Sonic Sonic fans are very serious, okay? Mario fans and Sonic fans, they, they waged war forever, right? In the Sega Nintendo days. So M- Sonic fans take their, let's call Sonic a flagship character for Sega, right? They take their flagship character very, very seriously. So you have to be really careful when you enter new characters into this world. So now you have a female ring-tailed lemur with a little bit of an edge and a little bit of an attitude. I like that. But you don't jump right in and say, hey, we just got the rights. We're going to give you this new character now. We're going to put our stamp on this. No, they're easing this character in. You're, they're they're going to give you a few issues. And then, okay, here's a new character. What do you think? brilliant idea by them because you set the stage you set the tone for sonic fans to say okay here's what we're going to give you you earn a little bit of trust over the first couple of issues and then okay here's a new character see what you think and you know the character will either sink or swim over time and we don't know where the story is really going to go for these sonic sonic comics yet so not even sure how much of a big role the tangle is going to play but if this character does take off This could be a character we see end up in the games at some point. There's no kind of decision on that yet. And this is a character that could really take off. I mean, Tails was a character that everybody loved when Tails was introduced. So think about it that way. It's not like this is unprecedented. And I certainly see no no pushback for this on social media so far. I mean, obviously, you know, we kind of tend to love to push back on things before we even see it in any form, right? I mean, that's kind of nerd culture nowadays where you kind of overreact to, in a certain sense, to certain things, especially if it's something that's beloved. So not much of that yet. So I think maybe a lot of cautious optimism from the Sonic fans on this. And I can't wait to see what IDW is going to do with this when it finally debuts. Finally, one more thing from Variety this week. John Cena, yes, the WWE's John Cena is possibly going to be playing Duke Nukem on the big screen. Now, we know the Duke Nukem's movie is going to happen from Paramount's Platinum Dunes, which is run by, you guessed it, Michael Bay. So, I mean, but hey, if you're going to have a property where things are going to blow up all over the place, Duke Nukem is a perfect one. So maybe this is the perfect marriage for Michael Bay. Now, no writer for this yet, no director. Wouldn't be surprised if Michael Bay gets involved at some point. But John Cena playing the title character. Let's see the movies that John Cena has been in. And I'm not going to rattle it off. You can go to IMDb and see for yourself. Um, it's not like this is a character on screen that Cena has played. And even when Cena was a heel, if you're not familiar with wrestling terminology, when he was the bad guy and he had that rapper edge to him, still wasn't really the quite the persona of Duke Nukem, right? Because Duke Nukem is hardcore. Yeah, he's he's wisecracking, and, 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 but he's crude. And John Cena's never really done crude. Not really. I mean, if we're really getting down to it, he's never done crude. He's never done complete 100% badass before. Yeah, he was in the Marine in 12 rounds. And, you know, he's definitely got the action background. Not worried about that at all. Not worried about him being able to play in the alien realm or handle the weaponry or anything like that. I know he's going to be part of the Bumblebee movie. Those are not my concerns. My concerns are is that you're picking somebody in a comedic slash that's always played in sort of a kind of a lighthearted character or who has that almost, you know, the kids look up to him kind of persona and you want him to be the crude 
Duke Nukem who blows up aliens and, and, and stuffs dollar bills into the G-strings of strippers. I, I don't know, man. This could be a horrible idea. It really, really could be a bad idea. Or it could work out wonderfully. I mean, but here's the thing. If anybody changes the character of Duke Nukem and takes away a little bit of that edge, other than diehard Duke Nukem fans, I don't know how many of which are still around, is it going to matter? If you change this character a little bit to make this character fit Cena's persona a little bit more, how much does it really matter? I tend to think it kind of matters. I really do. I don't think you could do a lighthearted version of Duke Nukem. I think you need to let him be crude. I think you need to let him be an ass. I think you need to be let him be exactly the edgy dude that he is because if he doesn't, it gets lost in the wash, right? And this is a movie that might not make a dime anyway. Or it could be the start of a franchise that could stretch out over several movies. I know that this whole video game movie thing you got to be careful because those aren't always done well. But this is a feast or famine type of project. Either Duke Nukem is going to take off with John Cena or whoever ends up playing the character at the helm. Or it's going to get buried so fast that we're going to forget it even existed. So we'll have to find out which one that's going to be. It's going to do for nerd news this week. Right now, let's change the channel to the CW because we're talking to a lot of the stars of the Arrowverse. We'll kick that off with Brandon Routh next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hi, this is David Harris from Supergirl. Hi, you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Taking you back to Washington, D.C. When I was in D.C. and D.C. 2018, a couple of weeks ago, got to talk to a lot of the stars of the Arrowverse. So let's start things out with D.C.'s Legends of Tomorrow and Brandon Routh, of course, who plays Ray Palmer. And he was asked about the changes coming to the cast, especially Victor Garber leaving the show. Hear what he had to say. It's been, it's been, it's it's tough when people leave. The energy shifts to the show because Nature of Our Show, yes, it is a big ensemble. And often we are in a lot of scenes together. So we're all, we have a cast lounge. I mean, we have, you know, on on the stage, nothing fancy, but we have couches and chairs that we sit in and we all kind of chat. Um, and uh, so that, that energy shifts when new cast members come in and out. Um, and, and obviously Victor's been with us for two and a half years and having him and his presence, uh, not only as talent um, has has been um, you know something to adjust to. We all miss him very much in his presence. And, and, but at the same time, somebody leaves and a new person enters, and the energy is the energy shifts. So it's it's kind of a, a cool thing. Uh, and it's interesting to see how the show changes too, and the energy of the show uh, and the stories that we tell. Uh, you know. Sad to see people go, but also change is good because change creates new opportunity and, and new creativity. So uh, I, I hope that we have Franz back um, as Jax sometime in the next couple seasons since he's still out there somewhere. The secret's already out. Kid Flash is coming to DC's Legends of Tomorrow. But before that announcement was made, I actually asked Brandon Routh what it would be like if Kid Flash joined the show. Hear what he had to say. There have kind of been rumors that Keenan Lonsdale might be coming on mm. to bring Kid Flash to the team. What mm. kind of a dynamic, if that did happen, do you think he'd be able to bring to the team? I mean, Flash is such a, and Kid Flash, is the, anybody in the Speed Force, they're such powerful characters that um, inter- introducing that is is, is is kind of really earth-changing, you know, in a way. So um, that would be uh, cool. You know, we've only had Grant to be a part of the show a couple times in a crossover, and that's always a 
exciting time. Um, though the air blowers are a little bit loud when they, when they zoom in and zoom out. <laughs> you, have to get, you have to get used to that. Um, but uh, Keenan's very talented, and um, the little bit that I've worked uh, with him on crossover and stuff has been great. Next up, it was so great to catch up with David Harrowood, who plays Jean Jones, the Martian Manhunter, on Supergirl. As a matter of fact, he actually talked a little bit about that Mars episode. And it was great to go to Mars. I think everybody was really excited. I, the, what, I, what I'm amazed at is how many people love the Martian Manhunter. Even crew love Martian Manhunter. So when, when we walk on set and there's a Mars set, everyone's really, really excited because it's something very different. Um, and actually going to his house was just just awesome. Seeing that that set was honestly, I, I actually sh shook hands with the production manager because I just said it just looks, it just looks, wow. looks awesome. So it's it's very very exciting to to, to all the backstory stuff because he's got such a, a, a great backstory, um, and he's got such a he's, he's such an incredible character that um, you know I, when, whenever I get an opportunity to play. Uh, play him a bit more because uh, uh, you know, playing him as a supporting character can be quite difficult sometimes but when I get, whenever I get to kind of let my hair down and play, play his own story it's uh, very exciting one of my favorite things about that character as a matter of fact has been Jean Jones the dad so you know I had to ask him about that one of my favorite parts about the show is seeing Jean as a dad in that dad role to like Alex and yeah. Takara so yeah. what's it like to kind of flip the script and do that a little bit again it's great you know and we have such a wonderful uh, cast um, he's almost become a dad to win shot as well now so you know, he True. calls him Papa Bear and the whole idea of Space Dad has been born online, <laughs> which is kind of, kind of cool um, so uh, you know it, it, I, I love the fact that he's, he's fatherly and that you know having lost his own family he's now gained another one with Cara, Alex, Wynn and people, the people in the DEO so I think uh, even, even in the comic books he seems like a solitary figure but I love the fact that we representing him as a, in a family with him as the kind of space dad. I kind of like that. One of the characters that we got to see in the Crisis on Earth X crossover was The Ray, one of the Freedom Fighters, of course, played by Russell Tovey. Russell actually joined me at DC and DC 2018 at the Press Roundtable. So I asked him about bringing that character from the animation into the live action and vice versa. What was it like moving that character from that animation realm into that big Crisis on Earth X crossover and really be able to explore him even more in that, in that Well, what was the best thing is I did the animation the same time as I was filming the crossover events. I was filming the crossover event at the weekends, I'd have the animation and they fed into each other and the animation was like, how many episodes was the animation studio? Uh, you did 12. So 12. So, like, so there's a script that covers 12 episodes and that really shows the kind of background for the Ray, for Ray Terrell. So for me, going into the actual show, it was like, it was free research. As an actor, you always try and develop a character and you always want to find out like who their parents are, where they're from, what their favourite food is. You sort of do these notes, isn't that what I do? Just to kind of little bits, just to give you some truth. But having this animation, as well as doing the live action, just fed into each other. And it, was a, it was a gift, really. It helped me out a lot. After that, Russell was kind of asked, will we see the Ray again, and where would he like to take the character at some point in the Arrowverse? I, I would love... Well, when it, when it comes to animation, I think that can go on and on and on. I'd love to do season two, season three of the animation of the Ray Freedom Fighters, because I think that is just... The stories can go on forever. And therefore, live action, I think, why can't the Ray have his own show? 
he can come yeah. and visit, he can do crossovers, <laughs> yeah. he can have his own shit going on, you know? So that's what I'd feel, I'd feel excited about that if you actually could flesh out the Ray and give him his own, like, well, it's ar- it's, it was my confident, arrogant Alan saying. But he needs his own show, doesn't he? Yeah. Next up, the amazing ladies of the Arrowverse sat down, starting with Katie Lotz, talking about whether or not it was actually the plan to eventually have her be the captain of the Wave Rider. I don't think they, the plan was ever to have me be in charge of the team, so I didn't know about it. Um, and I think when it was second season and it kind of, when I stepped into that role, it didn't... I was like, oh yeah, well we'll see how long this lasts, you know. <laughs> and then, and then it stuck, and it, and I kind of realized more uh, how important that is. I mean, besides me, but just more women in power. And I think uh, that's something I really hope to see, and I think is a huge would solve so many problems um, in all levels. Which I think we need to make work someplace where you can also balance family and have paternity leave and make it a situation where women can have children and still be able to return to the workforce because we need more women in charge. That's the only way that we're going to be able to pave the way for other women because we can understand their issues because we have somebody who's voicing their concerns. Next up, the question was asked about female villains in the Arrowverse, and I actually think that Daniel Panabaker makes a good point here. My pitch at one point was, and this is totally selfish, but like, was why not let Killer Frost be bad? Like, let her be the big bad of the year. For many reasons, I do think it would be great to have a female villain on the Flash on a more consistent basis. You know, yes, I was pitching I'll, that last night to our when we were filming. <laughs> so last night, maybe night four, um, to one of our producers, and I was like, we need. I wanted an older female villain, yes. somebody who's not like I'm gonna cut off your head, but like. Like an, an older, very like established. Uh, I think uh, create. Tilda, do you remember Tilda Swinton in that Snow, whatever the train thing? Uh, Snowpiercer. Yeah, right. But like she was evil. <laughs> yeah, she was great. Like, something like that. <laughs> so then that morphed into what other female characters would you like to see into the Arrowverse? And Daniel Panabaker once again with a great idea. But then listen to what Candace Patton had to say in response to that. Zatanna. Yeah. 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 Yes. Yes. No. <laughs> like immediately when you say that, my mind goes to like blank. So no, not even oh. blank. Like if that person comes on, that's so much more work, and how much does that cost? And visual effects. And, like, <laughs> so I don't even want to put that out there. Like, we have so many heroes and villains. I think we're good. Yeah, more normal people. And finally, if you saw the Wonder Women panel from DC and DC 2018, there was a lot of talk about equal pay and equal opportunity for women. So I asked Katie Lotz about something she said in the panel, and she kind of expounded on that a little bit. Katie, you said something in the panel, and I want to paraphrase on it. You said that in order for there to be more representation or better representation, the people that are making the, the decisions have to believe in you more. So do you feel like that's always kind of been the case with the group that you work with in this era version with the CW? Um, well, I was speaking about equal pay uh, more than I was representation when I was talking about that. And it, it is, in, if people don't value you women like as equal to men then there there's there will not be equality like in right. any sense in pay and representation in their stories being told and 
I think, you know, Warner Brothers does a pretty good job with uh, equality and representation on screen, and um, I'm hoping that, that we'll, we'll see that off screen as well. One of the things I really loved about this event at DC and DC 2018 was the opportunity to talk about so many different characters on so many different shows at the same time. I mean, David Harewood talking about the evolution of the Martian Manhunter character on Supergirl. And then, of course, you've got Brandon Routh talking about DC's Legends of Tomorrow and the comings and goings of the cast there. Russell Tovey bringing animation and live action to life once again in the Arrowverse with the Ray. And then, of course, the wonderful and amazing ladies, Daniel Panabaker, Katie Lotz, and Candace Patton of The Flash and DC's Legends of Tomorrow, who really stepped up and taken such an amazing role on these shows. It's been such an amazing time for women in the Arrowverse, taking these leadership roles, and it just works so well, and it gets to show just how strong these women and these characters really are. That's going to do it for this week's edition of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Getting close to 200 episodes. I'm going to be talking about Batman Gotham by Gaslight, the animated feature next week. We'll have more guests from that movie, and it's going to be a fun, fun time. I can promise you that. And then so many great things planned for our 200th episode as well. Follow along with everything at downandnerdypodcast.com. You can also subscribe to the show on SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, whatever you're using. Also follow us on social media as well, facebook.com slash downandnerdy, at downandnerdy757 on Twitter and on Instagram as well. Remember, you never have to apologize for being a nerd, so let your fan flag fly and be good to your fellow nerds.